This is a Woodside Church podcast. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Oh, wow, I sound loud. I sound authoritative and impressive. Louder, Gary, louder. More authority. Okay. Well, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, my name's Martin. Great to be together uh, and uh, uh, being part of family together. I am preaching today. In fact, I'm starting a new series uh, that we've wanted to cover as a team. And the series, the series enti- is entitled Love. Is entitled Love. Now, what we wanted to do is really look at some of the key cultural questions in terms of love, relationships and sexuality and I'm going to start the series, I'm going to be doing it over the next number of weeks. Uh, We uh, are going to include topics like homosexuality and transgender and some of the the key questions that have been asked in our culture. In fact today is going to be part one on homosexuality and uh, we recognise that there has been a dramatic shift of thinking over the last 10, 20 years, maybe 30 years, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the culture's view of homosexuality. I'm not aware that this has been preached on at Woodside before, uh, but I think it's time we do. I think it's time that we, we look at some of these subjects. I would, I would thank you. I would say that um, this preach is a, is a 12A certificate. Uh, so it's, uh, it's because of the graphicness of some of the stories in the Old Testament that we're going to look at today. And so if you are um, under 12, or if you haven't had your parents' permission, I'm looking around the room, who am I kidding? Who am I kidding? Uh, I, think, I think we're pretty safe in this room. Uh, but it's, uh, that's just for this, this one. For the rest of the series, is, would be as, as normal. It's just, so it's not so much the topic, because we're doing part two of the topic next week, Uh, It's to do with some of the stories uh, in the Old Testament that we want to cover, but as we get into them, you'll you'll realise why we we wanted to to set it like that. I would also want to say at this this sort of uh, starting point that for some of us, this is a little bit of an academic exercise, but for many, it's not. And so I realise that for some here, these are questions that you're asking personally of yourself. I think also there'll be some here asking questions for those close to them, loved ones or friends close to them. So I realise that this isn't, this isn't just an objective look at something. This is, this is close to home. Uh, in fact, it's probably in many respects close to home for, for, for a lot of us in the room. What I would want to say... Uh, although I know for some this topic is painful, I would want us to know that we are, this is not, this is about real people. This is about people who we love, who Jesus loves. And we would want to underline that wherever you are on your journey and whatever you think of this subject, you're welcome here. And we love having you with us. And we're happy to walk with you and, and uh, receive you. And I'll say more about that in a moment uh, as we get into this subject. 
What I also would want to say is I don't think the church has done very well on this subject. And I would go further and say I think we've handled the church as a whole has, has not got a good name. And, I, and I'm, I'm embarrassed. As someone who leads a church, I'm embarrassed that that uh, is evident. We see things, uh, in, even in Nottingham a few weeks ago, uh, people who would describe themselves as Christians with incredibly hurtful banners uh, aimed at some people. And I think it's outrageous. I would also say that I realise that when I look back, my life, uh, you know, particularly in my earlier days at school, I, I said things to people, I, I played my part in being incredibly unloving to people. Uh, and so, you know, I'm deeply sorry for that. Uh, maybe many can, can resonate with that in different degrees. Uh, thankfully, that I'm talking years ago, but it's still true. It's still true. One thing that we found really helpful as a church family is the way that one of the gospel writers, John, described Jesus in the beginning of, of, of John chapter 1. He said, uh, and that's, if you've been around Woodside, you will know this really well, I hope. Uh, he said that Jesus uh, came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And if there was ever a sermon series where we need to apply that that, that those principles, this is the one. And in fact, the, I would suggest we always have that foundation. What I mean by that, being full of grace, I think can be described as uh, being accepting, being welcoming, saying to people, come as you are. Uh, it's not about behaviour. It's about knowing love through grace. And uh, you look at the life of Jesus, you look at the people that he spent time with, their, their morals, in fact, their sexual morals were in a totally different place to where he stood, but they gravitated to him. So he was full of grace, and we are to be full of grace. But equally, Jesus was full of truth. So there was things that he was clear on, and he taught on, and so he was able to hold these things together. He wasn't one or the other. They were held in tension. He was full of grace and full of truth. And so we are clearly looking to try and do the same to the best of our ability. I would say, though, that when we look at truth, we are looking at our best efforts and our convictions of what we believe the Bible teaches. And so, please hear me, if you land at a different place, that's okay. You know, we don't have a party line here. You know, this is a place where everyone can belong. Uh, but we do think it's necessary to say, but we, we land here and, uh, and be clear and communicate those things with clarity, but you may f- find that you land in a different place, uh, and that's okay, and that's okay. What I would say also, there's lots of what I would say, isn't there? Lots of caveats. Well, there's a preacher here somewhere, just about 122 caveats. Uh, what I would say is that if you're not a Christian today, Today's talk, you're very welcome, please. You're very welcome. But you may not find this the most helpful place to start if you're not a Christian. That's up to you. But what I would say, what the place to start if you want to know what Christianity is about is, to, is for me to point you to Jesus. Because when we look at topics like this, it can sound like Christianity is about our behaviour, whereas actually Christianity is about discovering a saviour. Yeah. You understand? 
It's the gospel. And what happens when you meet a saviour called Jesus is that there's a few people liking my rhyme there, okay? I think I pinched it off someone else, if I'm honest, but, you know, just spread it was from me, okay? But if you, if you start with Jesus, then the way the gospel works is he changes your heart. He changes your heart. And so, actually, if you start with behaviour, it's the wrong place to start. Uh, now, Jesus was clear about what he stood for. He, what he did, it's not hidden. But actually, none of this will make sense unless... You know who Jesus is and know how he feels about you. And I tell you, he, he loves you. The other thing I would say is that we, this is part one of a two parts on the subject of homosexuality. Uh, that's because there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but you really need to come back next week to fully understand. I'm, I mean, it's a slight cheeky advert, I realise. Uh, but I'm hoping to be good enough that you want to come back and hear part two next week. Uh, The reason for this is this quote here. Let me read this to you. The the whole Bible is authoritative, we believe, for us, and it is only through what's described as progressive revelation or the fulfilment of the New Testament that God's commands under the Old Covenant are altered in the New What that means is that to really understand what the Bible teaches on a particular subject as broad as this, is you have to understand the whole of what the Bible teaches, what they call progressive revelation, and look at how the New Testament sometimes interprets the Old and sometimes alters the Old Testament. And so we're going to start with the Old Testament, but it really is not the whole picture. In fact, the whole picture will only become clear when we look at next week and we look at the New Testament. It's what they call progressive revelation. That's something that theologians would use and is so important in just interpreting the Bible. It's not just about pulling out one verse in isolation. It's actually understanding a scope of what God is saying. Okay, I'd like to get into this by reading uh, from a book called A People to be Loved. And it's a story, it's written by a guy called Preston Sprinkle, is his name. And it's a story of a, of a man called Eric Borges. And let me, let me read this. It's a tragic story. Let me read this story to you. Eric Borges was raised in a conservative Christian home. At a young age, Eric realised he was different. And other kids at school let him know it. He endured relentless and ongoing bullying throughout kindergarten and the rest of his elementary school years were tarnished with horror. I was physically, mentally, verbally and emotionally assaulted on a daily basis, recalls Eric. This led to chronic migraines, debilitating depression debilitating depression, suicidal thoughts, and a whole host of other mental and physical problems. My name was not Eric. I was stalked, spat on, and ostracised. On one occasion, he was assaulted in a full classroom and nobody intervened, not even the teacher who was present. Throughout school, Eric was treated like a monster, a subspecies of the human race. 
in his words, I was told that the very essence of my being was unacceptable. I had nowhere safe to go, not even church. In his second year of college, Eric came out to his parents. He told them he was gay. After performing an exorcism on their son, they told him, among other things, that he was disgusting, perverted, unnatural and damned to hell. Later that year, they kicked him out of the house. Eric shared his story on YouTube in 2011. In the video, he encouraged other youth who have had similar experiences that it gets better. Having suffered in a hissing cauldron of ridicule and torment, Eric wanted to help others to find comfort and hope to pull them through their pain. One month later, Eric killed himself. Eric's story is not an anomaly. The Christian church has often played an unintended yet active role in pushing gay people away from Christ, sometimes away from Christ and into the grave. The ones who don't kill themselves often end up leaving the church. And Preston Sprinkle continues. But here's the thing. Most people who are attracted to the same sex don't end up leaving the church because they were told that same-sex behaviour is wrong. They leave because they were dehumanised, ridiculed and treated like an other. An old Baptist pastor recently told me, people will always gravitate to where they are loved. And if they don't find love in the church, they go elsewhere. If the church is ever going to solve this issue, it needs to stop seeing it as an issue. Homosexuality is not an issue to be solved. It's about people who need to love and be loved. He finishes, obviously that's not the experience of every gay person in the church. Equally, I think it's more common than we'd like to think. Just a few things to say until we turn to God's word. Uh, it's impossible to cover everything on this topic, although we would do our best to land on the most important areas. I'd also say a little bit as we begin to get our heads in gear and thinking about this subject I think we need to take care with the terms that we use. Words are important. Words are powerful. You just need to ask any gay or lesbian person whether they've ever been hurt by words and you know what they're going to say. Also, we realise that there are no neutral terms and a lot of this is very charged. I think we need to avoid using phrases like homosexual or homosexuals as a noun. It sounds really cold and clinical, particularly to their ears. I think homosexuality as a topic, like what we're looking at here, seems to be fairly okay. But the, the broader terms like gay and the LGBTQ+, and those sort of terms, they're acceptable, they're understood in the main, and uh, I personally find them okay to use. I think it's helpful. Uh, but I would say that even a phrase like gay means different things to different people. So gay can mean they have same-sex attraction, but they are living and abstaining uh, living an abstaining lifestyle in honour of Christ. So these are for people who are believers uh, and they love Jesus and they've given their all to Jesus and as a result of that they've chosen to honour Christ by abstaining from that lifestyle. Uh, some I know are happy to be described as gay. Others to mean gay but monogamous. It's a monogamous relationship that they are, they are uh, thinking of. Thirdly, others to use 
it means multiple gay one-night stands. And the problem with gay, it means so many different things to so many different people. But I think care needs to be taken when we are talking to people who may see themselves as gay. I would say this caveat, though, let's not get caught in fear of not knowing what to say. Sometimes just having a gentle tone and a, a loving spirit communicates everything that we need to say. Thirdly, I would ask this question, how do we therefore reach our moral conclusions? I think uh, David Bennett writes really helpfully and sums it up succinctly for us. We must not put ourselves over scripture, but we must live under the word of God. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we mean when we say Jesus was full of grace. Yes, but he was also full of truth. And we want to do to the best of our ability of what our convictions are of what the word of God teaches, recognising that some other people might land at different places. That's okay, but it is important. And I feel as a family, we need to teach on these things, but with the desire to put ourselves under the word of God in our lives. Okay, so let's get into some of the verses in the Bible that is particularly helpful. I want to start in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2. This is actually helping us to understand the foundation of relationships. It's not specifically talking about homosexuality, but it is helpful in, in what it communicates about the foundation of relationships and God's design for humankind. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2.18 continues like this. Then Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, a suitable helper. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to the every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. We're going to go back to what that means, by the way, helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Shall, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. First thing, just to step slightly back from the detail, I realise that in a room like this uh, that there will be differing views of these verses and whether they are to be understood literally or whether the writer is trying to discover something, describe something more pictorially. I'm not going to teach on that because it doesn't matter where you view or where you land on that. What these verses are certainly trying to t explain to you is not how, but who. Who made the, the heavens and for what reason? Yeah. 
And so wherever you land on whether this is literal or not, don't allow that to, to distract you. This is telling us some key foundational things about how God has pulled the world together and particularly the making of humankind. One of, one of the uh, really helpful uh, theologians, a guy called Glenn Shrivner, and uh, some of you will know Glenn. Uh, he has spoken at some of our conferences, but he describes it this way. God's image is expressed in men and women together. Sexual difference is in some way a beautiful way that humanity mirrors the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The sexual difference of man and woman in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 reflects many other differing pairs that we see in creation. I find this so helpful. He describes these pairs. God and creation. Light and darkness. Earth and sky. Sun and moon. Land and sea. Humans and animals. God's design is complementary pairs. And in fact, each pair of terms uses a male and female nouns such that when you get to man and woman, the natural conclusion is it would be great if those guys got together. And so this, this foundation to how God is shaping the world is these complementary pairs which are used with male and female nouns, and then we got to, to get to man and woman, and, the, and the, the, the momentum is, and these guys would get together. I want to make a little comment about the, 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 the phrase suitable helper. Uh, let me say, it's not sexist, if I cut straight to the chase. It's not sexist at all. In fact, the same phrase is used of the Holy Spirit on how the Holy Spirit helps us and so so we will we will be going down an alley if we thought this is sexist language quite the opposite it's something a way that that is described of God himself and how God helps us the word actually comes from connecto and uh, my reading and others uh, see that very clearly it's saying that that uh, the woman is 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 as opposite to him similar but different so the clear implication in this section Genesis plays out and it plays out in the rest of the scripture that sex is a good gift from God it's a joining of a man and woman into one flesh in this sense sex is sacred sexual attraction is a beautiful thing but inside marriage without the shame that clearly came out of the creation story Preston Sprinkle puts it this way. Three things seem to be necessary for marriage according to Genesis 2. The first, both partners need to be human. Second, both partners come from different families. And if I'm right, he says in Connecto, both partners display sexual difference. That would be true to say that on the subject of homosexuality, that's not, you know, that's, that's not answering the whole question, but it is helpful to see that foundation in God's design right at the beginning. Let's, okay, so let's move on to the next one. What about Genesis 19? These are verses uh, about Sodom, and some of you will be familiar with this. I've got to say that these verses have been horribly abused, 
and horribly used by people who would describe themselves as Christians. Uh, so phrases like, and I, hate, I almost don't want to say it, but I'll say the phrase, gay pride is why Sodom fried, and those types of things. This is horrible, this is, this is abhorrent, this, we should have nothing to do with any sort of bullying or abuse that is conveyed in these things. In fact, if anything, the people of Jesus should stand up against bullying and abuse, not be the ones who are contributing to it. Uh, so this has been terribly abused, terribly abused. But what I would say, that as we get into this, I would also say that this is a narrative, this is describing something that happened, it's not prescribing, this is how things should be. And as we get into this story, you'll understand what I'm driving at. And this is a lot to do with why this preaches a 12a. So let's look at Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Lot invites them into his house in the verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And the NIV explains that know them means have sex with them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. That was their virgins. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they, they said, stand back. And actually, if you read on, the angels strike these men blind and rescue Lot. Now, much has been said about these verses, but let me be clear here. What this is about is... This passage is about gay gang rape. So the reason why this is so abhorrent is because this is about gang rape. And it would be a total misuse uh, of this passage to use this in any argument to say, well, what does God feel about homosexuality? Because there's other stories in the Bible which are just as graphic, which the context is heterosexual sex. And so if we were to do the same, do that in this, we'd be doing the same in, in a heterosexual sex. It's clearly not what the issue is here. We should not use this passage to reject monogamous gay sex in a marriage relationship. This passage and Sodom as a whole is completely irrelevant to the argument. In fact, this passage is, is mentioned in many different other verses and homosexuality and homosexual sex is never referenced. So it's been completely misused. I would also want to add what seems to our ears an awful, uh, an awful, additional awful moment when Lot offers his daughters to be, uh, to be, uh, to, for sex with with these men. This is again descriptive of what happened, and clearly not endorsed by God. This is where we need to realise that the Bible is, is incredibly faithful. Nothing's been, been sort of smoothed over to try and make it a bit, a bit more palatable, palatable, to, palatable to our ears. This is the Bible being very faithful writers, faithful, faithfully contained. But it tells us what happened, not descriptive, rather than saying this is how you should live.
It's probably worth saying that. It's a horrible story, isn't it? Okay, let's keep going. That's Genesis. Well, what about Leviticus? Does the law in Leviticus apply to us today? Let me give you a couple of, or the two relevant laws in Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22 says this very specifically. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20.13 says this. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their hands and their heads. See, the question here, firstly, is are these about all types of homosexual relationships or just some types? But please notice there's no mention of rape, there's no mention of coercion or age difference or or different judgment, whether there's a passive or active partner. They are unqualified statements. Some have said that this is about male cult prostitution. However, scholars have shown that cultic prostitution probably didn't even exist in the world at this time, let alone in Israel. And of course, it's not mentioned in the text. Some write off these laws because they are, there are some other strange laws in Leviticus that clearly don't apply today. So, for example, have ever you ever had a bacon sandwich? Yeah? If you have, you've gone against the laws in Leviticus. Did you know that? I don't know. Or do you wear clothes made with multiple types of material? Probably everyone in this room have got clothing with multiple types of material. Well, that goes against the laws in Leviticus. Do you have a tattoo? Some of you do. Actually, I'm thinking of having a tattoo when I think about it. I did, you know, it's growing on me. against the laws in Leviticus. And actually that point is made very clearly to Christians who quote from Leviticus, from, from people who, are, who know their Bible. And they will say, well, if you believe that, why don't you believe that? So the question here is, how do we handle Levitical laws? It's a really important question. Let me first say this. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, Matthew 5.17. So our question then is, how did Jesus fulfill the law? Firstly, some of the laws are fulfilled directly in Christ. So Leviticus 19 says, a ram for a guilt offering. So we know that Jesus is our sacrificial ram, our sacrificial lamb. So some of them are clearly directly fulfilled in the life and the death of Jesus. Secondly, we can say that some laws we still obey and they are all repeated in the New Testament. Things like theft, lying, taking God's name in vain. They are all repeated in the New Testament and we would, re- would recognise them as, as not being right now. Thirdly, other laws are tied to the culture of the day and we never see them repeated, not even in the New Testament. So Leviticus 19 says, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. So Josh, your beard is too too trimmed if we're following Leviticus. Fourthly, others contained core principles like caring for the poor and we take the principle 
and leave the specific examples. So the specific example would be not collecting the fallen grapes to allow there to be something for the poor. Well, we wouldn't say, well, it, the principle here is that we need to care for the poor. Next, we can say that the big exception are the food laws. Because we have clear reasons in the New Testament with both Jesus and Paul as to why we don't follow them. So you're okay, you can eat your bacon sandwiches. All of the other sex laws in Leviticus are still binding and many are repeated in the New Testament. Things like adultery, incest, bestiality. I think we could say this, the sexual ethic of Leviticus, the sexual ethic of Leviticus is never overturned or updated by Jesus or anyone else. We see from the New Testament the law is not seen as something to be chucked in the bin as outdated and fuddy-duddy. It's seen as something to drive us to faith in Christ. See, this is the heart of the gospel. You see, the gospel, Christianity, is, is nothing to do with a list of rules of behaviour. Although sometimes when we get into a specific subject, it feels like that's what it's about. The whole point of the law is for us to realise we will never match up. We will never match up to God's perfection and therefore we need someone else who will match up to God's perfection to be our replacement, to our atonement, our substitution. And so Jesus is the one who fulfilled all the law so we don't have to. That's what it means to be saved by grace. It's not, it's not by what you've done or what I've done because we would never match up. Or maybe someone would. No, we'd never match up. But what happens when we are saved is something remarkable. God changes our heart. We don't. God changes our heart. And then the Bible says he writes his laws on our heart. So whereas once we were going in a particular direction, away from God. The way the Bible describes it in the New Testament is we were slaves to sin. We were like, we had a bias towards sin. When we become believers, and we, our bias is changed. God writes his laws on the heart. We don't want to go that way. We want to begin to go this way, to be a slave to righteousness, to what God has for us. That's the gospel. Yeah. And so Leviticus is helpful, but ultimately it's pointing us to a saviour. Because it's not about behaviour, it's about our Lord Jesus, our Saviour. The rest of the Old Testament uh, says a lot about sex, uh, but no more about homosexuality. The whole book, uh, the whole, there's a whole book actually about uh, sensual sex, about in Song of Solomon. It uh, celebrates the sexual love of a man and woman. And we shouldn't miss the fact that it's of a man and a woman. God created sex as a good thing, a blessed thing, and that's to be celebrated. And we see there are dangers of sex that goes outside of God's given boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. It's not just for homosexual sin. It's for heterosexual sex that is outside of marriage. That also is going outside of God's plan for where sex should be contained and be celebrated and enjoyed. So in summary, let's just land this 
and summarise. In the Old Testament, there are some well-abused verses and we should not go there. We should not go there. In fact, more than that, we should stand up against any sort of bullying. We should be in the front of the line in defending those who are bullied for any reason, but certainly for their sexuality. We should also recognise God's design as a foundation for this topic and others, that God created in his image women and men. We should also realise the laws of Leviticus uh, and others throughout the Bible should point us to Jesus and not lead us to legalism. Christianity isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It's about, as I've said a number of times now, it's about meeting a saviour and discovering the life-giving way that God has for us. But this is just the start. Remember that to fully understand the Old Testament, we need to see how the New Testament speaks into the Old. And so it's an unashamed appeal for you to come back next week. Uh, because actually, yes, we'll look at the New Testament, but we'll also look at well, what are some of the additional cultural questions that we would ask today, in our day? What are the pastoral implications? How do we answer some of the many questions that people would have to us if they know that we're Christians? How would we answer those, those questions? We're going we're gonna to attempt to do some of those things next week. Let's stand together and pray, shall we? Most of all this morning, if you take anything away from this morning, most of all I would appeal to you that we go away knowing that God is a God who is love. He's not loving, he is love. And so everything that we look at today, everything that we grapple with, we need to realise that it starts at that place. So let's pray to the God who is love today. Father, we thank you that your word is abundantly clear. You are God who is love. And so, Lord, I pray that as we explore this subject, these subjects that we grapple, maybe for some I realise with great difficulty, Lord, would we first and foremost be drawn to you and know your love and receive your love, be overwhelmed by your love, be reminded about your love. Lord, I pray that we would not be deflected from that place. Lord, I pray you would help us in that. Lord, I do pray for anyone who this is close to home for. Lord, I want them to know that they are loved by us. Not only you, by us. They are accepted. This is a place where you come as you are. We all have baggage. We all have stories. We all have stuff that we're trying to navigate. And Lord, I thank you that you are creating a home where everyone can belong. So Lord, I pray for each of us. Lord, we all, we, all need a, we all need you, Jesus. And so Lord, I pray, would you help us, even as we go from this place, help us to, to, to draw close to you and help us to unpack this together, recognising that we come from different stories, that we even come from different cultures. And so we are starting places different right across this room. But Lord, you are constant and you are true. 
and we long to know you more in this journey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.